Before I start, just the typical thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the cover of the podcast. That was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's crack on with this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, where we take a look at the recently published impact assessment of the money laundering regulations and the response of the Regulatory Policy Committee to that impact assessment. I don't imagine this will be terribly lengthy, but it's worth a special in any event. On the 14th of July, Her Majesty's Treasury published its impact assessment of the Money Laundering Regulations 2022, which make amendments to the Money Laundering Regulations 2017. The amendments intend, so the impact assessment provides, and this is all a direct quote, to make the regulations as effective and proportionate as possible while maintaining compliance with the Financial Action Task Force international standards. Effective AML and countering the uh, terrorist financing regulations will contribute to making the United Kingdom a hostile environment for illicit finance protecting the UK's reputation as a safe place to conduct business and maintaining confidence in the financial system with associated benefits to inward investment and access to foreign markets by UK firms. Before we look at the impact assessment of the Money Laundering Regulations 2022, just a brief comment on what the regulations purport to do by way of amendment to the MLR's 2017. If you want more, than what I'm about to say, then the explanatory note is very good. It's only 15 pages long and it's available to read on the government website alongside the regulations. So what do they do? Well, they broaden the scope of some definitions. They expand the travel rule to transfers involving crypto assets, about which there has been much in the financial and mainstream media in recent months. Indeed, this isn't the only crypto change since the amendments require proposed acquirers of crypto asset firms to notify the Financial Conduct Authority ahead of such acquisitions and provide the Financial Conduct Authority with powers to undertake a fit and proper assessment of the acquirer. They amend the definition of art market participants, creating certain exemptions, particularly the notable one which we've discussed previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, relating to the sale of own work by an artist over 10,000 euros in value, as well as significant changes to information sharing. One final point is the broadening of information gathering to Annex 1 financial institutions, firms typically which perform activities such as renting out safe deposit boxes and commercial lending. These were traditionally low risk, always a bit of an oddity to my mind, but concerns about operations recently have brought them increasingly to the attention of policymakers. Now, that provides a flavour of the breadth of the changes, but there are others. And like I said, if you want to have a look at the detail of those, you can have a look at the explanatory note. Now, the impact assessment. But before I do, a note. There's actually a huge amount to wade through. The impact assessment itself is a good, weighty read. I don't plan to discuss the minutiae of it, but there are some key points that are worth taking from it and can valuably be taken from it. However, I want to make this point before getting on with it. Her Majesty's Treasury may well be able to take lessons on the value of presenting information in a more manageable format than is frequently typical in these impact assessments. 
I do get the need to publish these quickly for the sector to digest, but part of their success must be measured in the ability of the sector to understand the information quickly and clearly, something which is not always possible on a quick read of the documents. Now, that's my gripe out of the way. The impact assessment sets out the policy options for consideration. Option zero was to do nothing and leave things as they are for the time being. This was a non-option. The government simply couldn't do it, especially with the pressures that were building internationally. The FATF was bringing pressure, particularly in relation to crypto assets. And the European Union has made its own proposals in relation to crypto assets, which we've discussed in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly. So option zero was a non-option. Option one was the, I suppose, patience is a virtue option. And that option was going to wait for the wider money laundering regulations review and subsequent substantive reform. But that would require a significant degree of additional consultation, certainly in all likelihood it would, which would push back the timeline for changes into 2023 before any real legislative change could be made. This option, the government felt, didn't reflect the pressing need to change in this area, particularly in relation to crypto assets, as I've already said. So option two, the government's preferred option, namely to implement the proposed changes to the money laundering regulations ahead of the more comprehensive review of the money laundering regulations, which is being undertaken alongside. Uh, the quote from the documentation, the impact assessment reads, This option will maintain the United Kingdom's compliance with international standards, strengthen the United Kingdom's AML and CTF regime, including in response to emerging risks, and clarify its operation. Indeed, I suppose it's worth saying as a side note that option two appears to have cross-party support, as evidenced uh, when the money laundering regulations were debated in the House of Lords this week, on, I think, the 19th of July. So the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have at least agreed on this, that there is a need for reform. In respect of the preferred option, direct costs may present in relation to the information gathering amendments that I mentioned, and also the travel rule amendments uh, for crypto assets, again, which I mentioned earlier. Specifically on the information gathering changes, this will affect around 870 Annex 1 financial institutions, while the travel rule will involve additional costs in the in in identification of the originator and the beneficiary. There will be what are described as transition costs in this regard of £6.6 .6 million, principally dedicated to training, establishing systems and processes, and the purchase of compliance solutions. That's stuck in my throat a bit. Anyway, there will also be the ongoing costs of required technology, estimated to be just under a million pounds at 900,000. The cost which could not be quantified is ongoing compliance staff costs. In terms of indirect costs, delays in implementing change will mean the UK will not be fully compliant with the FATF standards and miss the opportunity to clarify the operation of the AML regime, which this amendment presents. The impact assessment provides the example of indirect costs of not implementing changes to the travel rule, with the consequence that the anonymity in crypto asset transactions is likely to benefit those who use these assets for illicit purposes. Clearly, the benefits of imposing the regulations now rather than later outweigh the costs, at least in the opinion of the government. 
Now that provides a brief, a brief flavor of the impact assessment. As indica- indicated earlier, it's genuinely headache-inducing as a document. Awful to read. It may be scarcely surprising that the Regulatory Policy Committee, the RPC, has concluded that the impact assessment is not fit for purpose, but the, rather, rather, rather more specific than it being difficult to read. Now, before we get into why they say that it's not fit for purpose, just a quick primer on the Regulatory Policy Committee. The RPC is an independent body sponsored by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the BEIS, with a remit to provide an external perspective on how regulatory proposals can impact businesses and civil society organisations. The RPC critically appraises the evidence and analysis presented in impact assessments, hence their intervention on the money laundering regulations impact assessment. In terms of why they regard it as unfit for purpose, they provide a number of grounds. First, the RPC was concerned that the impact assessment had not clearly distinguished between the direct and indirect impacts, limiting the RPC's ability to assess the robustness of the equivalent annual net direct cost to business. Secondly, the impact assessment has not provided a proportionate assessment of direct impacts to businesses or robust justification for non-monetized impacts. Thirdly, the impact assessment does not consider whether small and micro-businesses could be disproportionately impacted by the proposal. The RPC's fitness for purpose assessment is quite focused on the financials of the impact assessment, which is perhaps understandable given the expertise of the RPC being largely drawn from the field of economics. However, if I wanted to be generous to the government for a moment, while the government must necessarily have an understanding of the costs of policies which it's implementing through legislative change, there's also a wider scheme of influence weighing heavily upon it. First, There is the policy objective of the UK being a place where no financial criminal should feel it's comfortable to do business, and at times, costs might well have to play second fiddle to the need to implement robust legislative regimes. Secondly, there is the international obligations to which the UK is subject through the Financial Action Task Force. Broadly, the United Kingdom has good standing with the FATF through its mutual evaluation reports, which are broadly good, and its willingness to implement changes swiftly as they're made by the FATF. A good example of this is the change effective within a very short period to the list of jurisdictions under increased monitoring following the Berlin plenary in June 2022. So the government does have a wider set of influences on it. That said, the commentary of the Regulatory Policy Committee is incredibly valuable and I don't want to soft pedal it so it's certainly worth considering I think in the wider context of the review being undertaken into the money laundering regulations. Now this is not entirely related since it's not drawn out specifically in the papers but I think it's worth adding a footnote to the foregoing discussion in terms of what is going on and change that isn't being made Uh, It was stated that the government will retain the criminal offence of breaching the money laundering regulations. It's not discussed in the reports, but that's what the government has said it will do. There was some debate and discussion around the removal of the criminal offence because 
the threat of criminal sanction did, it's been variously suggested, operate as a persistent threat to regulated firms, causing a significant degree of defensive compliance. This came in the form of an increase in the number of SARS, quantity, not quality. But there was also the allied issue of regulated firms being a little circumspect about certain business transactions which are legitimate, but which require significant and costly due diligence to onboard. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the government has decided to retain the criminal offence of breaching the money laundering regulations, but change may come in some form through the reform of the SARS regime. You may recall in last week's Financial Crime Weekly we looked at the United Kingdom Financial Intelligence Unit's publication SARS in Action, which discussed their reform, albeit soft reform, but I think valuable nevertheless, where the UKFI indicated a willingness to support and collaborate with stakeholders in order to improve the quality and exploitation of SARS. This may, may go some way to softening the costs implications which are generated around the money laundering regulations 2022. Presumably, however, only time will tell on that one. That's it for this special of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you'd like to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I will be back this Sunday with the usual weekly. <laughs>